Good morning. It's great to be with you today and uh, to continue our series through the Old Testament. Can you see him? As we look at these different images that we see of foreshadowing the coming Christ, our wonderful Messiah that came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, we see these glimpses through the Old Testament. And last week, we, two weeks ago, we joked and laughed that there's lots of places where you don't need to try and look for Christ, grilled Jesus or in the side of a rock wall or in a plumbing pipe. But there's many places in the Old Testament where Jesus can clearly be seen. And it gives us a picture and a foretaste of the substance that has come and of what he has done. One of my favorite Old Testament men, one of my favorite Old Testament characters for sure has got to be Joseph. I, I call Joseph the faithful one because no one in this room, and, and I'll make such a bold statement, can say they've had it as bad as Joseph. I mean, Joseph, a young boy, betrayed by your brothers. Can you imagine? I mean, when you get hurt by someone, that's one thing. But when you get hurt by family, family hurt just exponentially magnifies the pain. And you're going to get thrown into a pit, sold in slavery. You're going to get accused of rape, thrown in jail again. And I don't think that's happened to anyone in this room. And so if you can compare your story to Joseph, that's pretty impressive and phenomenal. In the midst of all of it, Joseph was faithful. Joseph never stopped believing the promises that God gave him. And, you know, Joseph was a son of Jacob. He was the youngest until Benjamin came along. And uh, so Jacob was renamed Israel, right, by God. And Jacob's 12 sons were the tribes of Israel, except for what? Except for Joseph gets two tribes. That's how special he is, right? So Joseph's children, I'm sorry, not 12 sons, the 12 tribes are Jacob's children, and Joseph gets two tribes because of his faithfulness. And that's pretty cool that we see these pictures. And I said the words that tested him, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 105, and we'll start there in verse 16 and 17. When he summoned a famine, and that's God, when God summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, God had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were, light, were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Now this is interesting that we get this perspective from the psalmist that we don't have in Genesis. And so it's certainly true, but it's just another unique angle, obviously, in that time period when someone was sold into slavery and put in a cart by Midianites and transported across the desert and brought to Egypt. It, it wasn't like they were in the Ritz-Carlton. I mean, his, his feet were in chains. His neck was in a collar of iron. This is awful. But verse 19 is the key. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. What is until what he had said? Well, that's Joseph's dream and then his telling of it to his brothers. And we're going to see exactly what that is. For some of you, this may be the first time you've heard this story. But we know that God gives Joseph these dreams of how God is going to use Joseph. Okay, and Joseph tells his brothers, and until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. So the question is, hey, Joseph, when your brothers try to kill you and throw you in the pit, do you believe me? Do you trust me? When you're in that cart being carted across the desert, do you trust me? When you're wrongfully accused of rape and thrown into a jail again, do you trust me? 
Time after time after time, the word of the Lord tested Joseph. It all started with this young man in Genesis 37, where he tells his brothers the dreams. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf rose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheep. Now, is, did this truly happen? Yes. And, you know, Joseph's not lying, but in, I think Joseph needs to process what's going on. So he goes to his brothers and he's like, hey, this is what happened. Was it the best method? Maybe not. I mean, was he rubbing it in as he said it? We don't get that from the context whatsoever. What we get is that a young man, the youngest at this point, gets this dream and, and, and he wants to share with his brothers. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. See, Jacob, probably not the best parenting technique, played favorites with Joseph, gave him the coat of many colors and singled him out, which Jacob certainly shouldn't have done. And Isaac's fa- Jacob's father, Isaac, did the same thing with Esau, even though God said, the younger, okay, the older is going to serve the younger, Jacob, I'm going to use. Isaac still played favorites with Esau and didn't want to give the blessing. And, then, and so Jacob is, 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 this is not parenting 101, how Jacob plays favorites with Joseph. And there's this animosity and there's this jealousy that builds up. And, it, and, it's, and it's seething and it's going to boil over when uh, well, he gets this, he dreamed, let's see, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. <laughs> it's nice. They said to one another, okay, so this was the second dream. And this doesn't go over very well with them, of course. And his brothers are out tending the sheep. And uh, his father, Jacob, says, hey, I need you to take them some food. So this is the context. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. So Joseph's bringing them some food. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. This morning, we're going to cover like seven chapters of Genesis. So we're taking snapshots from a lot of this. So we're going to move kind of quickly. So bear with me. I'll give you the context as we go into each one of those. Can you imagine your brothers saying this about you? Can you imagine your siblings? I I mean, we all hear stories. I've heard some of your stories. I mean, it's amazing what happens when people die and the fights that happen over money and stuff like that. It's just ridiculous and it's sad and it's pathetic. We're not even talking about money right now. We're talking about they hate their brother so much, so vehemently that they're like, all right, we're going to kill him. I can't even fathom that. There's people that you may struggle to forgive in this world that have hurt you deeply. But would you go so far as to say, let's kill them? And and then it's your brother? I mean, that's just crazy. Well, they don't kill him. They end up selling him into slavery. And that's what we see in verse 28. The Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Now, it's no coincidence that it's the Ishmaelites. Remember the promise that was given to Hagar and to her son Ishmael that he would be like a wild ass and he would constantly be against the children of Abraham. 
And so we see this tension playing out constantly from Genesis till modern day in the Ishmaelites. Ishmael was the father of the modern day Arabs. So we see this tension and, and you know, you could probably argue that slavery in many ways is worse than death. Slavery 3,000 years ago couldn't have been a nice endeavor. I mean, can you imagine how hot it was in that desert being carted across with a, a collar of iron around your neck, your feet are in chains, you're starving, you're defecating on yourself, the maggots, the fleas, the disease, the infection. You just want to die, I would assume. I'm not speaking from experience, but remember the Psalm 105, the word of the Lord tested him. When he's in that cart, do you think he was thinking about that promise that God gave him? When he was in that pit betrayed by his brothers, do you think he was thinking about that promise that God gave him? We know that he was because we're going to see that borne out and he never stopped believing in God. It's truly phenomenal. Now he gets to Egypt and he rises to prominence in a man's house named Potiphar. Potiphar was a very successful businessman and the scripture says that Potiphar put everything in Joseph's charge. That's how faithful Joseph was. Joseph didn't get bitter. Joseph wasn't driven by vengeance. Joseph wasn't driven by self-pity. Joseph was like, all right, God's got a plan. It's really looking weird how he's going to bring it to pass, but God's got a plan. Now, we shouldn't be surprised in this because in Genesis 15, verse 13 through 16, God made a prophecy saying that he was going to use a nation for 400 years to protect the Israelites. That there was going to be an incubator, so to speak, to help the Israelites grow and that then he would lead them to the promised land. Well, God is sending Joseph to that divine incubator. He is sending Joseph and then for 400 years the Egyptians are, the Israelites are going to be there in Egypt and they're going to multiply and to become this great, mighty nation that God promised. So that's Genesis 15, 13 through 16. You can write down and check that out another time. That God knew what he was doing. This is not accident. This is all part of his divine plan. And God has brought Joseph into this plan to be the forerunner, to go to Egypt. This is pretty cool. So he gets to Egypt. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, so you're in Egypt and you're a slave. There's got to be something attractive about you for an Egyptian woman to risk everything she has to have an affair with this slave. And I'm not saying it's just merely attraction in form and appearance. I think it's his character. I think it's his work ethic. I think it's the total package that Joseph is this foreigner, is this slave, and this woman is so attracted to him. In verse 8, But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. This is crazy. I mean, he goes from a slave cart to running Potiphar's house. I mean, what Joseph says here is, man, my master doesn't worry about anything. Everything's under my charge. I've got his checkbook. I've got access to his savings accounts. I am running his home, and you want me to betray that to sleep with you? Come on, it's not going to happen. Look at how my master has trusted me. Look at how my master has trusted me. 
the, and I just want to point out that if Joseph was in pity, if Joseph was feeling sorry for himself, if Joseph was mad at God at this point, he wouldn't be Joseph the faithful. He wouldn't be, look at this God-honoring work ethic. I mean, look at this. I mean, he's like, he is not greater in this house than I am. There's no one except for Potiphar, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now that's some good theology. But I want to I want to talk about this God honoring work ethic, this Joseph the faithful. That there's no way that you would do this, considering. Okay, so you grow up and you've been given this promise. I'm going to use you greatly, and Joseph believes in God, and Joseph continues to believe in God, and he gets sold into slavery, betrayed by his brothers. Now he's in Egypt, and and he's working as a slave, and. And he doesn't stop working hard. You don't do that unless you believe God is real and you believe that he is going to bring to pass exactly what he told you. Now, I grew up on a farm and my dad valued work ethic. And so it was funny. I mean, it was my, my dad made these little flyers for me when I was like 12. And he's like, I want you to go to each of the neighbors and I want you to start cutting their grass if they'll pay you. And I was like, well, how much do I get paid? He's like, whatever they want to pay you. So most of them, I've got a push mower, that's it. And they're paying me like five bucks, 10 bucks. And then 14 years old, I'll never forget. My dad's like, hey, my, one of my good friends, Mike, runs a roofing company. I'm like, dad, I'm 14. You want me to get up on the roof? Yeah, I want you to get up on the roof. So all summer long, I roof. Then the next summer, I'm digging above ground swimming pools. And I'll never forget this one time on the roof, my first day on the job, and then digging the swimming pools one time. These guys came to me and they said, hey, man, you're making us look bad. Can you slow down? And I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, you're working way too fast. You're working way too hard. We're in this, we're, we're in this for the hourly kind of deal here. So if we come back for the next two weeks, it's good. We still, we still get paid. And, uh, you know, I wasn't a slave and I had that work ethic. Because my dad instilled that in me. My father instilled that in me. Joseph is a slave and has this work ethic. Are you kidding me? This guy's phenomenal. He is a slave, betrayed by his family, and he's honoring God, and he has the theology proper of, I'm not going to sleep with you because it'd be a sin. How would you be, how would I be, if your family betrayed you, and, and this woman wants to sleep with you. Like, Who cares? Sure. You know, God abandoned me. My family abandoned me. Who cares? Seize the day. You only live once. Whatever mantra of the day you want to quote, right? And, and, and you would just live in that potentially. But see, the word for sin is to miss the mark. And Joseph, even as a slave in Egypt, understands that this infraction to fall short of God's holy standard is unacceptable. Because he's like, you know what? This wouldn't be a sin against Potiphar. This wouldn't be a sin with you. This would be a sin against God because God is holy. God is just. See, when we sin, it's not like, oh, I'm sorry, I sinned against you. Our sin is ultimately against God because he is the one that is perfect. And Joseph's got his theology right because he's like, I'm not going to sleep with you. Not because of the earthly consequences that concern me, mostly. It is the heavenly consequence. How then can I do this wickedness against God? 
the Greek word for sin is to miss the mark, to fall short. And it's an archery term that you're aiming at the bullseye and you miss. And this wouldn't be Joseph trying for perfection and just falling short, that's sin. This would be willingly missing the mark, not even aiming at the target. This would be premeditated rebellion against God. This would be a willing sin saying, I know what God's standard is and I will fall short of it because I choose to. And Joseph says, no. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Can you imagine how tough this is? Day after, and it's not like he can go to his boss, go to the head of HR and report sexual misconduct. He's a slave in Egypt. And you think of the proverb, right, about running from the adulterous Roman. Flee, 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 just run from this. T- he can't even get out of this work environment. He can't even get out of this circumstance. He just keeps pressing into the Lord, trusting the Lord. Day after day, she is wearing on him. We have such weak excuses for how we give in to sin, right? When you think about this. And he's standing resolute because he has a promise from God. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment. So it's like a robe. She grabs it, and what does he do? He runs. She holds on, and it pulls right off of him. And he fled, and he got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, and he had fled out of the house, something. Everybody okay? All right. And as soon as she saw this, she, he gets, Potiphar comes back and she makes these false accusations. And what happens? He gets put in prison. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Now I want you to juxtapose verse 20 and verse 21. This is dark. I mean, it's not, it's not bad enough that your brothers betray you, throw you into a pit. You're betrayed by your loved ones. You're sold into slavery. But then, think about it. You'd think like, okay, things have turned out pretty well. Potiphar, trust me. I've got this God-honoring work ethic. And look, I can see God's promise coming true. I mean, like, the guy has given me everything in his home except for his wife. And I've been faithful with it. I've been faithful with it. I've worked hard. I have been faithful God, I can see how possibly, potentially in the future, the stars are all going to bow down and the sheaves are going to bow down. I can see this coming to pass. Now all of a sudden he gets wrongfully accused of rape, thrown in prison again. You're like, what? You know, we have, we have sayings for that. You know, he's unlucky or he's snake bit or if something bad could happen to him, it's going to happen to Joseph. I mean, and it's happened. He's in, and look at how dark this is. He's wrongfully accused. He's put in prison. And then you read 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. This is my question. In our trials and tribulations, do you believe the Lord is with you? He is. 
The question is whether you believe it or not. The question is, do we believe that his steadfast love is pursuing us? How does Psalm 23 end? Surely his goodness and mercy shall pursue me. The hounds of heaven chasing me, pursuing me all of my days. Do you believe that, that his steadfast love, he's expressing it to you with his spirit and with his word and with his presence? And he gave him favor. This is grace. Favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. In the midst of darkness, do we believe in God? Do we continue to believe in God? Or do we fold up our tent and pout? Do we punt and give up? God is not fair. Where's the justice of God? Joseph never stopped believing. Now it's important. Joseph's faith, his saving faith, he believed that God was real. And sometime in jo- as Joseph was a young boy, just like with David, God passed over David's brothers and said, that's the one. And he appointed the anointed one. He appointed the anointed one to be the king. King David, a man after God's own heart. Somewhere in God's divine economy, he looked at Joseph out of those brothers and said, that's the one. His faith in God. And it wasn't just his saving faith. It was his steadfastness of faith to continue believing. Do you think that qualified him and prepared him for this special mission? It's beautiful that we don't see Joseph. I know we don't see everything But what we do see from Psalm 105 is that the word of the Lord tested him and he never stopped believing. Now, the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were, it's the same story as Potiphar's house. I mean, this guy, I don't know if he had the mop and the broom and no one swept the jail like Joseph or no one mopped the floors like Joseph or Joseph's jail cell was the most pristine or Joseph's, you know, feces bucket was always, you know, in line. I I don't know. Obviously, it said in 21 that God gave Joseph favor in in the eyes of the keeper of the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. It wasn't like God just said, okay, like him. Joseph had the character to back up the favor. Joseph had the work ethic to back up the opportunity. You hire someone and they disappoint. You're like, well, you had an opportunity. You kind of blew that one. That's not the case with Joseph. So there's a, the the story continues and and it's quite intriguing. I would encourage you to read, uh, you know, starting there in Genesis 37. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool stuff. We keep on to verse 23. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So there's a cupbearer that gets put in prison, and there's the chief baker that's put in prison. They have some dreams. Joseph interprets those dreams, and the cupbearer, his dream turns out to be good. The, uh, the baker, the chief baker, his, uh, his dream doesn't turn out to be so good. He's like, hey, you're going to disappoint Pharaoh, and he's going to hang you, okay? You're going to die. So that's the context. We're obviously skipping over quite a bit to go through such a large story. Well, Pharaoh has a dream. 
It's got some fat cows and some skinny cows, and there's seven, and then there's seven. And he's like, man, no one in my court can interpret this dream. Well, the cupbearer says, ha, there's a guy in jail that can interpret your dream. He interpreted my dream, and it came to pass. He said I would be restored to this position. And he told another guy about his dream, and it didn't come to pass. He got killed. Or the dream that Joseph said did come to pass. just wasn't favorable for him. So Joseph comes forward, requested by Pharaoh, and he interprets the dream. And Joseph is very, very, very important. There's this one section, I I believe it's in uh, chapter 40, around 17, 18, where Pharaoh tries to praise Joseph for the interpretation of what happens. And Joseph says, no, 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 no. God's given me this skill. This is what God has given me. This is to his glory. This is to his praise. So this is, now we'll read chapter 41, Pharaoh's response. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this? In whom is the spirit of God? This is the most powerful kingdom in the world at the time. It's no coincidence that God chooses this incubator, this resting spot for the children of Israel to multiply. Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Now look what happens. Just and this is what follows Joseph, right? It happened in Potiphar's house. It happened in the jail. Now the most powerful man in the world, in the Ptolemy Empire, in Egypt, is about to say this to Joseph. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Do you think Joseph at this point is like, okay, God, you're funny. (laughs) God, you've got a great sense of humor. I thought my brothers were going to bow down. I didn't know I was going to be the most, second most powerful man in the world. And I'm not overstating. Look up the power of the Egyptian empire under the Ptolemies. I mean, come on. This is unbelievable. And historically, it's undeniable and undebatable that the Israelites were there from archaeology, from the artifacts, from the pottery, from the writing, from the extra-biblical history that we get from other primary sources. This is how it played out. And it was all prophesied in Genesis 15, 13 through 16, that God would use this great nation to build up Israel. Because, think about it, back then it was a rough time to live, right? Okay, so for you, you start propagating like rabbits, and you aren't like uh, especially skilled at war, another nation state, another king, another fiefdom is going to come and crush you. But if you're under the protection uh, as a vassal, under the most powerful empire in the world, Egypt, who's going to crush you? And they multiply, and they mul- it was God's divine plan to grow them. This is cool. God working through the course of history to bring about that promise to Abraham that he made. You will have more descendants than sands on the seashore, than stars in the sky. And the ultimate descendant will come, and he will be the Messiah. He will be the Savior. Look, the Bible is not a bunch of incongruent stories that make no sense. There's congruency here 
there is a thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation. It's consistent. God created us in his image to know him, to enjoy him, to glorify him. It was sin introduced by Adam and Eve that marred that, and God was redeeming. And the ultimate picture of redemption is seen in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. And Joseph is a beautiful picture of that future Messiah, that coming Savior, and I'll show you how. So this is, this is pretty cool what Pharaoh is giving charge to Joseph here. 42, and Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. Now you're probably saying to yourself, I mean, Joseph just interpreted a dream. But the Egyptians, we know from history, were very, 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 very mystic-driven people. They were all up into the signs. I mean, you had, you had, you had uh, Egyptian kings. If they were sick, we have from history, they were into alchemy projects where they would boil gold and they would drink gold. Yeah, it'd kill them. And uh, because they felt like, I mean, there was all kinds of crazy potions uh, you know, they would let the snakes bite them. They were, they were the ones that really led the way in medical endeavors with, uh, with bloodletting, with leeches, putting leeches on the body and things like that. Very mystical people, very superstitious people. And they very much bought in and believed in dreams. So when Pharaoh has this dream, seven fat cows, seven skinny cows, and no one can give him a reasonable interpretation. And Pharaoh hadn't even seen the interpretation come to pass when he's doing all of this. But what Joseph says, Pharaoh's like, that's it. That's it. We're going to have seven years of plenty. Those are the fat cows. And then we're going to have seven years of famine. Those are the skinny cows. And Joseph's like, well, what you have to do is you have to store up. And so Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of the granaries and of the country and he runs it. We have seven years of bountiful harvest. We're going to store up in the silos. We're going to be disciplined. And then we can survive through the famine. And that's spoken to in Genesis 15 as well. So it's not crazy to think that Pharaoh would give this type of favor. We see the same thing in Daniel. I mean, you look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel. They rise to Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of War in the Babylonian court. Why? Because they were faithful and trustworthy and God's hand was upon them. Okay? So this was very common that rulers would bring in other foreigners who showed great promise because it would give them greater insight into ruling and conquering in the world. So this is not uncommon, especially with superstitious people like uh, the Egyptians when Joseph interprets the dream. And it keeps going. And he made him ride in his, in his second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set over him all the land of Egypt. So the seven years of plenty, boom, it happens. Then the, fa then the famine comes, it happens. I believe they're in the second year, we'll see it in a second, when the, when the brothers come before. So Jacob's like, hey, we're going to die. I heard that Egypt knew this was coming and they stored up. So you need to go to Egypt and get some food for us or we're going to die out. So in God's divine comedy, he sends the brothers to go before Joseph. And that's where we're at in Genesis chapter 45. Joseph could not control himself 
before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Would you pay to have been there in that room? I would, I would give up almost anything, right? This would be phenomenal to be in that room at that moment. And the emotion that overcomes Joseph, I think, is understandable. And is it about the vengeance towards his brothers or is it about God? I've never stopped believing you and you brought it to pass. Exactly like you said you were going to bring it to pass. And here it is. And it's right here. And he loved his brothers. He loved them and he had forgiven them. We see that. And these are where we start seeing the foreshadowings of of the Messiah that was to come. And it's this beautiful, I mean... Joseph was not truly innocent because he was a sinner, but Joseph did not deserve to be treated the way that his brothers treated him. Jesus, Jesus did not be, deserve to be treated the way that we treated him. We said, give us Barabbas, crucify him. Joseph didn't deserve that. Jesus didn't deserve that. But we see what? That salvation or God's deliverance comes through trials and tribulations. In Joseph's life, we see the same thing in Jesus' life. That salvation, deliverance, comes through trials and tribulation, through the cross. From pain comes life. More life, an abundant life. I mean, God has a plan, and Joseph's a part of it. And I think at this point, it's not just the emotion of his brothers betraying him. I think it's that Joseph is a good Jew. Joseph knows Yahweh clearly. And Joseph knows the promises that God gave to his grandfather, Abraham. His great-grandfather, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Joseph. And so Joseph knows that the descendants one day will be more than the stars in the sky and the sands on the shore. And he sees the full picture now and how God has used him, this little boy that was thrown into a pit, betrayed by his family, that God has used in such a powerful way. It's humbling. And he wept aloud. So the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? That's a pretty cool, that's the first question. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer them. For they were dismayed at his presence. Man. What do you think his brothers are thinking right now? Oh my word, is this true? How did this happen? Who is that guy if it's not Joseph? How does, he, how does he know Joseph? This is a long time ago. How did, what's going on? So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. What? Joseph, you're too nice. Kill somebody, please, right? You know, I mean, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here to preserve your life. For God sent me before you to preserve life. 
Now, I've told you the whole while what God was doing. And now you see Joseph verbalize it and articulate it. And you're like, you're crazy, man. Like, this is crazy. How do you do this? You do this when you know God. You do this when you know God's heart and when you know God's plan and you trust him. And as Job said, though you slay me, I will trust you. Though you slay me. Job lost everything. But his very life, though you slay me, I will trust you. Bill Hamlin went to be with the Lord, as many of you know, and he was an elder here and a godly man that served for so many years. And he battled with cancer for the last few years. And that was his verse that he shared with me many times. Though you slay me, I will trust you. Bill was a picture of a man that was faithful when the world would say your God's abandoned you. Where's your God now? You're dying. Where's your God now? He hasn't healed you. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, God can save us. Just because he can doesn't mean he has to. Now God in that instance showed up in the fiery furnace and delivered them. But we need to understand that deliverance the greatest miracle of all that Kathy Oswald has told me over the last couple weeks as well is that is heaven not a wonderful miracle to see come to fruition? Receiving a new body? Is that not beautiful? Seeing that in heaven? God has a plan. And a lot of times in our life when the bad things happen, we are so quick to get mad to get resentful, to, God, this, no. But we don't see the beginning from the end. We don't see the big picture of what God is working. But if we would slow down and ask, because see, in James 1, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience and allow patience to have its perfect work so that you'll be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if any of you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives to all men liberally. Do we find it coincidental that a great promise of prayer and wisdom is given in the midst, in the context of trials and suffering? James 1, we all encounter various trials. Trials produces an outcome that's good into our benefit into his glory and he gives us a promise what's the promise if you lack wisdom ask of God and I don't think he's going to tell you why but I will think he'll tell you how to trust him and what he's doing Job kind of got mouthy with God through his trials and God just has this beautiful discourse where he rebuts were you there Job, when I hung the sun in the start, were you there when I store up the snow in heaven, a special amount for buffalo? Were you there? Were you there when the calf gives her young, bears her young? I mean, you know, it just goes on and on. And then he says, oh man, will you answer me now? Job's like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to shut up now. I'm going to shut up now. You're kind of a big deal and you kind of know what you're doing. Joseph I am not trying to paint Joseph as a perfect man. Jesus died on the cross for his sins just as well. We don't see a lot of unfaithfulness in Joseph's life. 
I'm sure there was moments of doubt. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm sure there was times in jail where he wrestled, but he wrestled with God like his grandfather Jacob and he, his father Jacob, where he's like, okay, I give up. I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. You're good. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. There's just no rain. It's, it's a dust bowl. It's blight. It's just no good. And um, Joseph's like, man, you guys, you guys need to stay here because, see, God sent me here. God sent me here. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. See, Judah was one of his brothers. Judah was there. Judah was there when he was thrown into the pit. But God has already said that the lion of the tribe of Judah will be the Savior. Through this imperfect brother, the lion of the tribe of Judah will come forth. And Joseph's like, man, if I got to save any of you, I've got to save that one. The Messiah is coming from you, man, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. This is amazing when you look at how clued in, nailed in, zeroed in Joseph is on what God is doing. That does not come through unfaithfulness, that comes through faithfulness. That comes from God, I'm hurt, I'm mad, I'm angry, I'm sad. Put any emotion up on the board. I was accused of rape, I was put in slavery, I was thrown into a pit by my brothers, I was sold into slavery. Everything bad that could happen has happened. But in the midst of it all, I pressed into you and you have been faithful to show me what you're doing on earth for heaven's sake. You have been faithful to show me. And this is the result. This does not come through some magical concoction that Joseph came up with. This is truth. And this truth came from God himself to Joseph because Joseph pressed into the Lord and trusted him. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Well, Jacob, so at this point, and there's a lot else that happened. He tricked them, hid some, you know, hid some silver cups and stuff in their, in their bags, and, you know, they got in trouble. Oh, bring Benjamin back. Oh, no, dad's not gone. It's beautiful. It's an awesome story. Look at it all. Well, it was all part of, and, and I'm skipping over so much that's not doing even the story justice, how amazing it is and how detailed, how many chapters this is given in the book of Genesis. Um, but eventually, so the father comes, Jacob comes, and it must have been a beautiful day to see his son, right? Well, then Jacob dies in Egypt. Now Jacob's like, hey, don't leave my bones here. You got to take them to the promised land. No problem. But when Jacob dies, the brothers are a little upset. Like, um, hey, are you going to kill us now? Now that dad's gone? Are you going to kill us now? Were you just waiting to see dad and to see, you know, the one brother that didn't betray you, Benjamin? Um, and now are you going to kill us? Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? What an awesome question, right? That's rhetorical. Joseph knows the answer to that. I'm not in the place of God. 
yeah, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. Now, God didn't mean evil. God's not the author of evil. But Romans says that all things work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to his purposes. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, Joseph was innocent. As innocent as any man could be in a human court. And what his brothers did to him was wrong. And he suffered greatly. But it brought about the preservation of life. And now we see this radical grace that he extends to his brothers. Grace that they do not deserve. Grace that they certainly are not asking for. At this point, they're like, are you going to kill us? I mean, right? I mean, we deserve to be killed. He, he doesn't answer with vengeance. He doesn't answer with murder. He answers with, I trusted God. This is what God's doing. I extend to you grace. This is seen no greater than in the person of Jesus Christ. It is seen most ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus that we see the one true innocent person that died. He was sinless. We are sinful, and yet he died in our place. And it's through Jesus that we see ultimate pain and suffering and trial and tribulation that brings forth deliverance and salvation. Joseph's just... A foretaste, just a small sliver. We see the ultimate expression in Christ of radical forgiveness, of Jesus from the cross saying, yeah, this is pretty cool what Joseph says. I forgive you. I forgive you. But when Jesus looks down from the cross and says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That's the ultimate picture of grace. Because on Joseph's best day, He would never get into heaven apart from the finished and perfect work of Jesus Christ. Joseph needed a savior as good as he was. And that person that came, that God man that came was Jesus. And so when we see this radical grace and forgiveness, it gives us a foretaste of the one that came. As we close out today, as the band comes forward, And as the ushers come forward to pick up the offering and any connection cards. I take you to Psalm 105 again. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of him, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Joseph believed and he kept believing. Do you believe and do you keep believing? No matter the circumstance, no matter the trial, no matter the tribulation, no matter what, the accusations, the false imprisonment, the slavery, do you give up? There are so many promises that are ours, that are from God. Joseph had very special, unique promises. The Bible is chalked full of promises that are to us. God created us. He loves us. He desires for us to know him and enjoy him. Jesus Christ died so we could have life and have it to the full, to have it abundantly. And he's given us a mission. And as Don Manta comes and talks about ISI in a few moments, as we talk about their mission, we have this mission to speak of him to disciple our children, 
to love our neighbors, to forgive. Do we hold on to those promises faithfully like Joseph did? Or do we vacillate? It would be to my benefit to be faithful here, so I'll do it. But here, not really. Could it be said of us, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord Jesus, your promises are beautiful to us. You created us so that we could know you and enjoy you. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your word. You've given us a mission that cannot be compared to any other mission on this earth. It is a mission that will shape all of eternity for your glory and for your praise. Do we hold on to those promises? Some of us, we would say, oh, life's good, life's easy, and we still don't hold on to the promises. Others, we're like, man, life's hard, and we're not holding on to the promises. Lord, help us to be faithful in the sunshine and in the snow, in the drought and with rain. Help us to be faithful in plenty and in want. Help us to be faithful to you, Jesus. Help us to be faithful like Joseph, to believe that you are who you say you are and that believing you is what is most important. Help us to be faithful. Show each man and each woman in this room the areas of faithfulness that you desire of them. And show us, Lord God, how it is in your grace and your power that we can obey. We don't obey you so we could be pleasing. As your children, we are already pleasing to you, and we obey you because it, bring, it brings you great pleasure and joy. We obey you because you first loved us, and you've changed our names, and we'll never be the same. We don't obey so you will love. You already love. Obedience is our response. So help our response of faithfulness to be pleasing to you, done in your power and for your glory. We love you, Jesus. As we pass the offering plates now, please give generously and as the Lord would lead you to give sacrificially. If there's connection cards or updates or prayer requests that you have, you can put those in the offering plates. We pray here. We are committed to prayer. And we're going to continue to worship and we'll have a testimony from Don and we'll close out our time together.